1: Yeah, good morning, uh, and uh, happy uh, holiday to you. If you don't know, today is Reformation Day, Um, and so uh, we can celebrate the reality that throughout the centuries, God has preserved his gospel, preserved his word, and continues to do so today. So 504 years later, um, here we are. Let me tell you a little bit this morning about a different guy who, through whom, God used to preserve the gospel. Just a couple of years before the Reformation, a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius, if you don't know, uh, you actually owe quite a bit to Athanasius as a Christian. He was born in 298 A.D., And he lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And he became the bishop of the church in Alexandria in 328 AD until the time he died in 373. Okay. Now, what's interesting is just a couple of years, a little over two years before he became the bishop of the church in Alexandria, there was a little council that met um, and produced something that we call the Nicene Creed. And the emphasis of the Nicene Creed is to declare uh, the deity of Christ. That is that Jesus actually is God. Why would that be important? Well, there was a guy by the name of of Arius who was uh, about 40 or so years older than Athanasius. So he had been around on the scene a little bit longer. And he began to say something like, well, if the Bible says that Jesus is God's son, then he certainly can't be God as well. And that began to be a teaching that was spreading throughout the churches, this misunderstanding about the deity of Christ. And so this council met and said, no, Jesus is God. And we're going to put that into these words. And all these church leaders came together and they were a part of this council. And all of these guys who actually believed what Arius was teaching signed off on this creed. And then they walked away from that meeting and went to their churches. And they began to twist the words of the creed to fit Arius' teaching. They began to use the language that was there and kind of warp it so that they could, in good conscience, sign off on said creed, but also continue to be Arian in their teaching. So hundreds of bishops did this. Now, now, the Nicene Creed that we have, if you looked it up, has actually been adapted to, uh, uh, later was adapted to... Um, fight some of the twisting of language that happened in the years that Athanasius was alive. But that, that actually occurred much later. And a, par, a big part of that was the ministry of, that Athanasius had, not only to his own church in Alexandria, but to all the churches throughout the world, the known world really at the time. For decades, for decades, Athanasius wrote and preached over and over again from God's word why Jesus is God. And because he did that, there were some that kind of felt like, well, you know, if, if, if this guy would just let it go a little bit, we wouldn't have so much, you know, trouble around here. And so they didn't like that. And so they exiled him. Five times, five times in his life, he was forced out of his church, out of his city. And there was a group of people in the desert uh, who were Christ followers who would take him in uh, during that, during those seasons. And so for 17 years of his life, 17 years of the, of the time that he was, I think he was bishop, uh, he was over that church for 45 years. And 17 of those years he spent uh, in exile. Because he continued to defend the deity of Christ. Now, this morning, we aren't talking particularly about the deity of Christ. We are talking about how we ought to love one another. And those two things, I guess, uh, if you don't know, are related, right? We know that loving people according to Jesus' command has never been easy thing or a natural thing to do. Uh, Even for saved sinners like us, right? It is difficult sometimes to love other people. But it is also becomes increasingly difficult if our understanding of love is not defined as Christ would define love. It becomes incredibly difficult to love others as Christ commanded us to love others when we begin to when we begin to define love by something other than the Bible that Jesus believed was true, other than the actual words of Christ. So we can't take this for granted as our as the talk about love in our culture increases. In some ways, the depth of its understanding least biblically right which we would say is rightly it shallows and we're left with this sort of shell that looks good on the outside it looks good if you look at it from a distance as long as you don't press it too much because when you begin to press the world's definition of love too much it crumbles And yet in Christ and in the gospel, friends, we actually have a kind of love that while it is hard and difficult sometimes to live out, it is solid through and through. So if Athanasius hadn't done the work of defining Christ's deity correctly, people would have missed out on understanding the fullness of God's love for them, right? Because the reality that Jesus is God and would do what he did increases our understanding, it increases the depth, it increases the reality of God's love for us. And so we owe that, in part, to Athanasius, the ways that God used him in his time. And likewise, if we don't rightly define love today then we'll miss out. And if we don't rightly live out love today, we will miss out. And so this morning, I want to answer the question, what is genuine love? What is genuine love? As Paul is defining it here in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Now, certainly this isn't everything about love, but it does say something and something significant about it. And then I want to look at how a Christian is to apply genuine love, particularly to two groups of people genuine love towards other believers and genuine love towards non believers. So if you'll look with me at the text, as Coleman was reading it earlier, you might have thought that this is just a bunch of random commands about loving others. At first glance, when you first read it, it just seems like Paul is shooting off 21 just lightning round statements about love. But I think if you look a little bit more carefully, if we look a little bit more carefully, you'll see that it actually works together. See the passage starts with this phrase, let love be genuine. And that phrase is sort of a header for our the entire unit. The overall theme of what's happening in 12:9 through 21 is what does it look like to genuinely love? And genuine here it's it's the word unhypocritical. In in the day that that idea of uh, hypocrisy would have been related to uh, someone like an actor on the stage, and so what he's saying is, what is love that isn't pretending to be love, but is really love? Now we could say love should be sincere, not fake, and and that is true, and there's something to that, but. But if we stop there, I think we're missing all of what Paul is trying to say here. Look look with me at the text. Notice what is right after this phrase, let love be genuine, this header. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, the word abhor means hate, like a lot, right? And the word hold fast it means to cling to or to even be wedded to something. It's, it's intimate. It's as close as you can imagine. There, it would be difficult for me to overstate the strength of the words abhor and hold fast. They, Paul's intending to use some pretty strong language here. But again, these are not just unconnected ideas about loving others. Look at with me at the very end of the passage real quick. What does it say in the very last sentence? It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are those words again. And so we have these ideas, these words at the end of the passage, and we have these same words at the beginning of the passage. Why is that? Paul is bracketing this section with ideas about what is evil and what is good and why is he doing that what he's saying is you want to know what genuine love is you want to know what what is real love not fake love it's love that is good it's love that is not evil that is what love really is as defined by the character of God and the character of Jesus. And this is reinforced by the surrounding context, is it not? Remember a couple uh, weeks ago, or rather last week, we talked about Romans 12, 1 through 2, and it tells us to be transformed uh, by the renewing of our minds as we're able to discern what is good and pleasing to God. And so Paul has just said, you know, in Romans 1, uh, 12, one through two, he's, he's kind of given this header for this whole section, what, you know, we want to know what is good and pleasing to God. And then, and now then he's jumping to, okay, what does it look like to love other people? And he says, well, if you want to love other people, you've got to do it in a way that is good, pleasing, and acceptable to God. And that means you need to abhor what is evil and you need to cling to what is good. If you don't do that, then you're not really loving people. You may think you're loving people, but you are not because God defines love, not you. And then and then later, we'll see in a couple of weeks, in chapter 13, it's just all the same section, right? We, we preach these sections uh, of the Bible in chunks every week because, you know, you don't want to have me up here preaching for three hours to go all through, you know, all of chapters 12 and 13, right? So, So we do it in little chunks, but sometimes when we do that, we forget that all of this stuff is actually connected to Paul. It's all, you know, leading one from the next thing. And so when we look at chapter 13, this is all part of the same unit. And what does it say there? It says, you want to, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments you shall not adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you want to love your neighbor, Paul cites what? The second half of the Ten Commandments as defining what it looks like to love your neighbor. He's saying, no, you don't just, we don't just have this obscure idea of love. God in his word has defined it for us. Jesus in his life has lived it out for us. All right, so, so the point of all of this, the answer to my first question is this. Genuine love rejects evil and does good. And that's really the point of this whole passage. Genuine love rejects evil and does good. If we do anything that God would call evil, it cannot, by definition, be love. It can't. And if we avoid doing something that God would say is good, then you are not being loving, period. So with that overall idea in mind, within these brackets, Paul describes two things. In verses 10 through 16, he describes what does it look like to have genuine love for other believers. Let me, Paul says, let me give you some examples of what genuine love for other believers looks like. And then in verses 17 through 20, he's gonna make a pretty bold point about what genuine love for non-believers looks like. And friends, listen, if we take this passage seriously, as we should, this is difficult. It's difficult to hear as it reminds us of our failures, and it is difficult to hear as it challenges maybe uh, what we would rather do sometimes. So we've got to keep, I I love that song, Be Thou My Vision, because we've got to keep our eyes on the love of Christ for us and on his grace as we read this, both as our motivation to do it, but also as a reminder of his forgiveness where we failed. So with that in mind, what does genuine love for other believers look like? Well, Paul starts by appealing to three different qualities, brotherly love, honor, and zeal. First, brotherly love. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Essentially, when it comes to brotherly love, have a familial devotion to one another. Do you realize the Bible describes the relationships of believers to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? We, as fellow Christians, one with another, are an extended family. And that's kind of, I don't know, weird sometimes, I think, in our worlds today to think of it that way. But it is absolutely critical to genuine love between believers as God defines it, right? Because in our world, relationships are so uh, kind of come and go, right? But, but God is saying here, Paul is writing in, 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 to the Romans and saying, no, there's something stronger that binds us together, stronger even than blood. And you know, with your family, you have family members that sometimes are difficult to love, right? I, I know we all do. If you don't have a family member who's difficult to love, you are probably that family member, right? <laughs> I hate to break it to you. There you go. We have family members who frustrate us. And friends, uh, there are going to be times when there are believers and those just in this church, right, in this room, who you disagree with, who frustrates you, who take you off at some point, and yet we're called to be devoted to one another as family. Second, honor. With regard to showing honor, we are to surpass one another. Paul here isn't so concerned about giving each other big heads, right? He's not, he's not saying like, oh, watch out, you might make each other prideful. I mean, he addresses pride in other places in this passage, sure enough, but in regards to the way that we are acting towards one another, he's not concerned about me giving you so much honor that you get a big head about yourself. No, what he's concerned about is, are you actually trying to surpass one another in giving one another honor? Are you trying to outdo one another? We live, friends, in what I'd call a vulture, vulture culture, Right? We circle over one another's heads, anticipating each other's failures in order that we can kind of be first to the scene with our hot take on the situation. That's kind of the world we live in, and that's how the world we live in operates. And there's, listen, there's a place for honest evaluation. There is a place for correction. But the competition within the church isn't who can outdo the other in giving criticism where criticism is due. The competition is how to surpass others in giving credit where credit is due, in the recognition of the good that's happening in and through other believers, That's where we are in competition, if I can use that term, with one another. And I've got to be honest with you guys. As I think about this passage and as I prepared for this message, I am convicted. Because oftentimes, I'm very bad at this. I have a tendency to maybe think an encouraging thing in my head but then it stops there. And I don't seek not only to honor someone with my mind or my heart, but seek to surpass other people in giving honor in actually giving that honor, right? No one, no one wants to be in a community filled with fake compliments. It kind of renders any real encouragement meaningless, right? I mean, we know that, and yet... If we are constantly dwelling on what is negative, if we're constantly talking only about the things that are negative and rarely celebrating the positive, it squishes the life out of you, right? It's like you can't even breathe. So are we surpassing one another in giving on? The third thing he talks about is zeal. Now, now, even though this phrase is in verse 11, I, I want you to know that the, the verse structure that's not canonical, right? Like, that was added later, okay? So, uh, uh, you know, don't go, oh, well, it's in verse 11, so it doesn't really belong in verse... 10. No, no. I think because of the way that this is structured is actually similar to the two phrases in verse 10. It belongs with that group. It's the third in the series, and he says, with regard to zeal or with regard to your diligence, with, with regard to your eagerness, don't be lazy. We're warned We were warned a couple chapters before about the way that some zeal can lead to sin, but Paul is all for zeal in loving one another. Like if you're trying to love one another rightly, you be as zealous as you can be. Don't be lazy in it, actually. He says, stay zealous, be fervent in spirit. Now, you may have a footnote here about whether spirit should be a, a lowercase s or a capital s. They're not sure, you know, was it fervent in like my spirit or is it fervent in like the Holy Spirit working in me? And I think actually I would prefer defining it with a capital S. I think it's more likely to mean the Holy Spirit that we should look for, that we should pray for the Holy Spirit to set us on fire. And that's what the word fervent here means. It's this idea of setting on fire. We should pray for the Holy Spirit to set us on fire, to love one another, to show honor to one another. And then, it, and then it says also, serve the Lord. Why is that important? Man, I tell you what, you want to bracket your love according to what is right and, not, and good and not what is evil, then put at the very front of it service to God, not service to anyone else. What will honor him? You want to continue to be motivated in your love for other people. Think about serving the Lord because of what he's done for you. And now you ought to have, we ought to have, frankly, unlimited motivation to love one another. We make the mistake, I think, sometimes of, of putting our love on cruise control, Right? Things are going good. Maybe some relationships are good. We see this in our marriage, right? You, those of you who married, you ex- have experienced this. I'm sure if you've been married any length of time at all, things are going well. So we kind of put it on cruise control, but, but past history doesn't promise future results, Right? And so it's like a campfire. You've made a campfire and you you build the fire and you get it going and you sit back and you're enjoying the fire. And then what happens? After a little bit, the fire ain't so fiery anymore. Like, man, that that fire looked good five minutes ago. Now it's like barely burning. Why? Why? Because when you have a campfire, you have to constantly tend that fire. You have to stoke that fire. You have to make sure that fire has oxygen. You have to continue to put wood on the fire, or else the fire will die out. Be zealous in your love for one another. Continue to fan the fire of your love for other believers into flame. That's critical because, guys, not everything in life goes well, does it? Can I get an amen on that? Like, not everything in life goes well? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sometimes things don't go so good. And Paul, he's going to demonstrate, I think, in this next few verses, how we love one another in times of need, in times of material need, in times of relational need. But he's going to start first by showing us the basis for our loving other believers in need. And that basis is understanding our own need for God. Right? Look, look what he says. He says to rejoice in hope. He says to be patient in tribulation. He says to be constant in prayer. Recognizing our hope. That our hope resides in the reality of what Christ has done for us. And what that guarantees for us, despite today's troubles, is absolutely essential for loving one another. Being patient in tribulation, right? Uh, be patient in the midst of discouraging circumstances. If we aren't, we'll never be in a place where we can continue to help those in need, even despite our own tribulation, right? We are not patiently waiting, understanding that God will come through for us. And he says, constant in prayer. Do you, do you know? Do you know the only kind of person who's constant in prayer? A person who understands their constant need for God, right? And so we have a constant need for God. And because of that constant need for God, Paul intends to encourage us to meet one another's needs when other believers have them. Because you are in need all the time. See, you will always struggle to love when you are not seeing God's love for you. And you will especially struggle to love needy people when you don't see the fact that you are needy. So from this, Paul begins to tell us how we need to uh love one another, and meet the needs of one another in our material needs. He says, contribute to to needs. The phrase here literally means <clears throat> To fellowship with the needs of the saints. Not to fellowship with the saints, to fellowship with the needs of the saints. That you actually are close enough that you know you are right there with the people in your life, the people in your church, the people in your gospel community. You know their needs. You're right there with them in it. then it says to show hospitality, right? Hospitality. The word, it it, it literally means love of stranger. Practically speaking, in the first century, they didn't have hotels and Airbnbs, right? And so as the Christian is traveling along and he comes to a town, he needs somewhere to stay. And Paul's like, hey, if that person's a Christian, you bring them into your home, you feed them dinner, you give them a place to sleep, and then you send them on their way. That's hospitality. Because we need one another in that way. Repeated throughout the New Testament is that command. That no, (laughs) to, to put it kind of in a practical way, no Christian should spend the night out in the cold as long as there are other Christians. I think it's been astounding. Over the last few years, the ways in which I've seen this church step up to provide for one another, I could tell story after story about ways that uh, when someone was in a a point of need, uh, other believers came around them and provided for that need. The ways in which we've blessed one another by opening up each other's homes. But I think, I think at times we've been lacking friends in this third command. And I want to challenge you in this. The third commandment is this. Or the third command in this passage is this. Bless your persecutors. You see, verse 14, it's been debated where it fits in in this passage. Does it fit with the love of, uh, with our love for believers or does it fit with our love for non-believers? And I've decided to keep it in the section about uh, loving other believers for three reasons. First... It would otherwise be the only statement in, a, in the midst of a bunch of commands that are clearly for believers, right? Because the next couple of verses are clearly about believers loving other believers. And so why would this one verse in the midst of all this be for something different? Second, there's a, a tie-in, a, a Greek word tie-in that we don't see in the English translation. The word seek in verse 13 and the word persecute in verse 14 are the same exact word. And so he's saying, rather, uh, just in the same way that we would seek to be hospitable, don't seek to do harm. James 3, 9 through 10 clearly says that Christians can and do bless or curse one another. And so, I, it's my opinion, and take that for what it's worth, that when Paul here says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, he is saying, bless those other Christians who persecute you. Bless and do not curse those other Christians. You can envision one of these Romans traveling, comes to a house in a different city, fellow Christian, someone has told them, hey, I know there's a Christian, he lives on such and such a street. When you go through that town, go on knocking his door. He's a Christian. Certainly he'll give you a place to stay. And so the Roman Christian comes up and he knocks on the door. Yes, uh, yeah, so-and-so told me to come here. That you're, you're a believer, I'm a believer. C- c- you know, I need a place to sleep tonight. Guy opens the door, right? Man, sorry, uh, I just can't be bothered today. You No. Got too much going on tonight. Not enough bread to go around. You have to find somewhere else. Sorry about your luck. I'll pray for you. A little bit later, that, that guy comes. He's traveling through Rome. Knocks on a door. Hey, I heard there's a Christian that lives here. Door opens. The guy he wasn't hospi- hospitable to. What's that Christian to do? Wait, last month, I came and knocked on your door and you wouldn't give me a bite to eat or a place to sleep. And now you come knocking on my door expecting me to give you a place to sleep, expecting me to give you my food, my kids' food so that you can eat? Are you serious? Yeah. Paul says, yes. Yes, I am serious. Yes, you do. That's exactly what you do, bless. Bless. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into it now. We've seen on a broad scale the way Christians have treated one another in their different views of things like masks and vaccines over the last year or so. And I know that there is concern and very legitimate concern, particularly about vaccine mandates and about the potential for some of you of losing your jobs because you haven't been vaccinated. I personally don't have any issue with a vaccine, I don't have any issue with someone getting vaccinated. I have not been vaccinated. Hopefully, y'all don't fire me, right? We don't have 100 employees. We only have one, (laughs) so I'm good. Okay, sometimes we need a joke to lighten it up, right? I do believe that it's unethical to mandate people to be vaccinated in order to keep their job, in order to feed their kids, in order for their kids to go to school in a system that they've paid for. Like that. The idea of you have to put something into your body in order to feed your family, it, it, is, it is just it's unethical, in my opinion. It's wrong. It's morally wrong. But friends, this is an opportunity for us as a church to meet needs, to be hospitable, and to bless our persecutors especially other Christians. And some of you need to consider how to keep from turning your frustration about vaccine mandates into unloving behavior towards Christians who are genuinely just trying to do what they believe is right in wearing a mask or being vaccinated what they believe is just trying to love their neighbor. And there are some of you who can't understand why someone hasn't been vaccinated. And you're going to have a temptation to go, well, well, if they lose their job, don't come ask me for help. That's your fault. You should have just gotten vaccinated. And I'm going to tell you that's the wrong attitude. The wrong attitude. I think Paul's point here is to bless them anyway because they're fellow believers. And uh, so if I've stepped on everyone's toes a little bit, then great, that's, I've done what I intended to do there. Paul tells us also that we need each other to meet the relational needs that we have and that that's part of loving one another. He says this in a couple of ways. He says first that the first part of it is rejoicing and weeping. One of the ways that we can express love for fellow believers is by rejoicing when they rejoice and weeping when they weep. Friends, again, I'm just gonna come back to this again. I'll step on some more toes. There are people who have, who have experienced loss and and emotional difficulty uh, because of the COVID-19 situation on on both sides. And despite whatever you believe about what we should or shouldn't do, about what the government should or shouldn't do, are we concerned about weeping with those who are weeping? When something tragic happens, do we seek to understand and support those people? And when something joyful happens, do we celebrate with them? Part two of this is is in verse sixteen and it talks about unity and humility. And really, you've got to understand all of these things together. And you've got to especially understand unity and humility together. There's no way for there to be unity in the church without humility, right? In the individual believer's. And, and he says, this last piece, he says, associate with the lowly. It's not, it's not exactly certain whether he's saying associate with lowly people he's, or whether he's saying associate with lowly things, Is in be willing to do something lowly if that's what's required of you. But I think both make sense in the context. Certainly both have been commanded throughout Scripture. But what do we do if someone wants to rejoice over something that is evil? What do we do if they they use unity as an excuse for something that's not good? This has got to be framed by this idea of abhorring what's evil and clinging to what's good, right? That's a major part of Paul's point here. If a Christian is weeping because of something God would call good, if they're mourning over something that God would call good, or rejoicing over something God would call evil, then correction is needed. Weeping and rejoicing must be framed by Scripture. We we can be humble and still say, that's good and that's evil. That's a lost, lost art. To remain humble and say, friends, no, that, is good, and that is evil, and this is what God's word says about that. And to do so with humility, not thinking too highly of ourselves, as the word says. Paul commanded us in the previous verses, is your heart seeking to love a stranger or seeking to persecute? And I would ask you, and I think it is important in these situations where maybe we have a disagreement about whether something should be rejoiced over or something should be wept over to consider where your heart is and its orientation. Is it desiring to, is it seeking to love a stranger, someone who maybe has a different uh, opinion about a thing than you have, or is it seeking to persecute? Right? Satan is not dumb. He deceives people into celebrating what's evil. And he deceives them into accusing Christians of hating our neighbor. And part of what he, I I believe, is doing is this sort of reverse psychology on us that, that gets us to downgrade our command to love people who may not be like us. He wants us to ignore that the punch of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was that he was a Samaritan and not a Jew. The overall sense of what Paul is saying here is that we ought to want to love our fellow Christian. So, What about those who do not believe in Jesus? What is genuine love for the non-believer? The assumption here, friends, is that if we're abhorring evil and we're clinging to what is good, non-believers at some point will not like us. Because Paul's been clear in Romans that people who do not know God love evil things. Paul has, does something interesting with the structure here. In verses 17 and 18, verse, and then also in verse 20, you have kind of these parallel ideas in that they're both about what we ought to do practically in the face of evil. And then in the middle of that is verse 19, and, and, and that's where the core thought is, and it tells us what makes love for non-believers possible in the first place. So let me, let me break this down for us. Don't repay evil for evil, he says. But do, do these two related things. First, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Doing what is honorable means doing what is generally seen as good, as a good thing, even to unbelievers. And then second, he says, live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you. So live in a peaceful way towards those who are on the outside. But these commands are with a qualification, right? It's, it doesn't merely command us to appease the sentiments of the world around us. Around us, It says to give thought to it. It doesn't say to live at peace no matter the cost. It says, but as far as it depends on you, live in this way. Both of these ideas, both of these commands are framed by the idea of abhorring evil and clinging to what is good. Thus, if there is something that the world would generally see as good and God would call that thing good as well, then we ought to be the most diligent in that thing. Where you can find common ground, find it. Don't be conflictual just to stir it up, but seek to live at peace If you can do so without compromising what God says is right and wrong, seek to live at peace in whatever place you can, in whatever area you can, without compromising what God says is right and wrong. And here's where this becomes hard. We are sometimes led to believe that with People, particularly who oppose us on certain issues, that if we, agree with, if we agree with them in any part or in any way that we're like giving ground to them, that even thinking, even considering what we could agree with them on is already the wrong mindset. And yet, that's exactly what Paul tells us to do here. He tells us to give thought to it. He's not talking about giving thought to, how, to, to what might be honorable both to us and to, non, to, to another believer. He's talking about what, giving thought to what might be honorable to an unbelieving world that would also, be, also would be something we would consider good as Christians. And why can we do this? Why can we not repay evil? Because God promises to repay it. We know his character, represented in his wrath, guarantees it. And we trust in God's ultimate justice that we don't have to seek justice for ourselves, which rarely turns out to be just, right? Nor do we need to despair in our hearts uh, at that, that the thought that, that someone may not ever be brought to justice because God has his means in this world and the next to do that, and we can trust in it. And what do we repay instead? We repay good for evil. If your enemy has a need that it would be good and not evil for us to meet, Paul says, meet it. Meet that need. Let us be as bold and risky in our love towards our enemies as we are bold and risky in our declaration of the truth. And what's the result? You will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? This, this section, it's, it's, it's a quote from Proverbs 25. And the proverb, they believe it draws on some ancient Egyptian image, imagery where a person could... Uh, could, would be seen as purging their sin by carrying like a bowl of heaping coals, hot coals on their head. Can you imagine? I, I won't make you do that. And so there's two ways of thinking about this idea of burning coals on the head. Either it affects shame and repentance in the opponent, right? Oh, wow, I, I did evil towards you and you did good towards me. That really makes me feel really bad about the evil I did towards you and in that way it brings heat on them as they realize the error of their ways, or it furthers their condemnation, right? Perhaps Paul intends both, since he's certainly not shy, that we should both serve our enemy and trust that God will judge rightly. So, I brought up Athanasius for two reasons. One, because defining Bible words, whether it be the deity of Christ or love, with Bible definitions is terribly important. But also, more to the point for this morning, is this Athanasius never actually saw final victory, he died. He died just a few years before. They made uh, adjustments to, to the creed and said, no, we are going to once and all, for all finally say that this Arian controversy is over, that that is heresy. But Gregory, a contemporary of Athanasius, records that when, he was, uh, when Athanasius was given power again after his third exile that there were all these people who had been imprisoned on either side of the issue because of, you know, supporting Arius or supporting Athanasius, and that Athanasius had the power to free them. And, and, and this is what he says. He says, quote, Making no distinction as to whether they were of his own or the opposite party, he treated so mildly and gently those who had injured him that even they themselves, if I may say so, did not find his restoration distasteful. Can you imagine having been exiled for the third time because these people are your opponents and you have the power to either free them or leave them in prison and you not only free them, but you do it in such a gentle way that they're like, you know, actually, I, I can't really even say anything bad about you. Before his final exile, Athanasius called together a council as, as the tide kind of was turning in his favor and more and more of the, uh, the, the leaders in the church were, were coming to his viewpoint as he continued to declare the truth of the Bible. He calls together this council in which he, he, he tempered the zeal of those who might have wanted vengeance, and it set the stage for councils after he would die. And how to handle the way in which you should treat those who had opposed Athanasius in his view and of this Jerome records in history quote or that he quote snatched the whole world from the jaws of Satan not not in his declaration of the truth in this instance but in the loving way that he dealt with those who had opposed him. Because, as another biographer wrote, he said that the example Athanasius set of love stopped countless schisms and made a way for many to come to the church who would have otherwise had no place but to go back into Arianism. And so Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we allow the evil of others towards us or towards the church to cause us to respond in evil ways, then Satan wins there. But if we respond in obedience to God, then we are assured that evil will be overcome with good. And the promise doesn't rest on our great ability to outgood someone's evil. The promise rests in the God who calls us to obey, even when we don't understand how it will work out. And by faith, friends, we obey not because we can see how our good will overcome evil, but because we trust in a God who is sovereign and who is just and who has overcome the evil of our hearts, who has overcome the evil of Satan, and who has overcome the evil of death in his resurrection. And that's why the deity of Christ matters. Am I right? Let's pray.